I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick how they overcame adversity to keep on going. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In this episode, I'm talking with Dave Combs. Dave is a songwriter and photographer with over four decades of experience. He's written over 120 songs and created 14 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music. His songwriting began with the now popular standard Rachel's Song. His soothing, relaxing music has been played millions of times all over the world on radio, satellite and all internet streaming media and it continues to touch the lives of millions of people all over the world. This episode is going to be a story of the struggles, the successes and indeed life-saving melodies that literally changed people's lives which is now culminates in a brand new book. So let's bring in the great man himself. Welcome to the show, Mr. Dave Coombs. Dave, wow, what an, in, how are what you an today? introduction. <laughs> how are you today, my friend? Well, now I'm, I'm really pumped up now after that introduction. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good. So you've been writing and playing music for over 40 years now. So how old were you when you started to play? And we're talking about the piano, of course, aren't we? Well, I was born to, fortunately, to parents, both of whom played the piano. So I, I guess as soon as I was born, I was probably exposed to music. But as soon as uh, I could reach the keyboard, so to speak, I'm sure I, I remember sitting on my daddy's lap and him showing me some how to play a few notes or whatever. So I've been around music and uh, I can really never remember a time that I couldn't play something on wow. the piano. Wow. It's, it's just uh, one of those, you know, when you're, your memories of age two, three, and four, those are really kind of, you know, foggy kind of memories anyway, but uh, I can never really remember not playing something on a piano. It's just uh, part of me and being around it with my parents. And then, you know, I was very active. Our family was with our local church. Uh, I'm Southern Baptist and we were to the Baptist church. Music is a huge part of the Baptist church uh, service. I love choir music. I love the, the the piano and the organ duets and, you know, all wonderful music. So just music has been going in and out of my ears for my entire life. Wow. And of course, as a as a kid, I took piano lessons like most most children do at age eight or nine when your fingers are long, <laughs> big enough to, to reach the keys on the on the piano keyboard. And but after that, 
uh, I pretty much taught myself how to play by ear. Now, I had a good model in my father. He, he played totally by ear, and he could just sit down at the piano and play anything. And his mother, my grandmother, my, my Granny Combs, as we called her, she was born in 1894, and she loved to play the old pump organ. She could play by ear as well. Yep. And there was this organ back before electricity. You pumped the, uh, the air through this organ with your feet. There, there was bellows that you just pumped, in the, mm -hmm. and it made a beautiful organ sound. She could play that organ and sing. And then she had her own other favorite instrument, which I have here with me. For those of you that don't have video, it, I'll play a strum of it and see if you can guess what kind of instrument it is. It's called an auto harp. Wow. It's, it's an instrument, a stringed instrument with just little buttons where you can push and it'll play a chord. Well, my Granny Combs could make this thing talk. She loved to play the auto harp and sing. And my job when I would go to see Granny, She'd hand me her auto, auto harp, and she said, David. She always called me David. Uh, I guess that she should. That's my given name. Everybody calls me Dave now. But anyway, <laughs> Granny called me. She said, David, would you, would you tune up my auto harp for me? So first thing I'd do is get out the key and tune up all the strings so it sounded good. Yeah. Then I'd hand it back to Granny, and she'd sit there, and she would just tear loose on that thing and sing, you know, <laughs> Amazing Grace and all these, uh, the old rugged cross, all of her favorite hymns, and she she could just really play and sing. Yeah. So I guess, you know, that was kind of a musical inspiration for me from the get-go. And so my music has been a kind of a foundation of my life all my entire life. Incredible, yeah. I, I'm, uh, a, I used to be a professional musician myself, but I was the only one in my family who could play. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and um, I, I could play anything, but needed the music for it. I didn't have the, um, the ability to play by ear. I could play by ear, and it would sound okay to most people, but as a musician, you like to get things right, the right chords and the right things. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I, I didn't have that ability. I was okay. But, yeah, so, so to be embedded within a family where music is your life makes a huge difference to what you hear because you're, you're always doing it. Where me, I was treading a lone path. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you still succeeded in having fun and in enjoyment for yourself. And obviously you became very adept at it and, and very skilled. Yeah, That's yeah. Good. Yeah, I, I uh, went up to being a session music and I loved it. I met some awesome, famous people. and But you hit the nail on the head. It's fun and enjoyment and it's just awesome. And the thing I like about music more than anything, no matter what mood you're in, there's always a song you can play that fits. Isn't I, that amazing? It yeah, really is. Yeah. Whether if you're in a sad mood, you can sit down and play a sad song. You know, you can play in a minor key and it, could, it sounds kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. If you're in a joyful mood, you could sit down and play a lively piece of music and it sounds happy. Yeah, so you, yeah. you can span the emotions on the on the music yeah you just get lost in it as a musician it's just wonderful so your genre is soothing and relaxing and what's interesting there's some medical research connecting instrumental music to improved health and wellness 
That is to say that listening to instrumental, soothing, relaxing music has measurable, positive, psychological and physiological effects upon us. So for you, Dave, was this genre a choice for you or was it something that you felt inside? It was almost a natural thing for me because most of the, the music that I really loved as a youth was a, centered around my, my church. A lot of the church hymns are very, if you, if you listen just to the instrumental version of them, Quite a large number of them are very just legato, smooth. Uh, uh, it puts you in a, a, a thoughtful, uh, almost uh, relaxing emotion. What I'm, the word I'm trying to think of is a, a worshipful mm -hmm. uh, mo mood of, of being relaxed and having your thoughts focused on mainly just the music and very mm -hmm. positive and uplifting, inspiring kind of thoughts. Yeah, contemplation. So that it is really kind of a natural for me to sit down. And I would, of course, I was 33 years old now before I wrote my first song. I wrote Rachel's song, The, the Music, right. at age 33. Right. So wow, we'll come up to that in a moment, yeah. <laughs> yes, so for 33 years before that, I was playing other people's music. You know, mm -hmm. I would hear a song you know, the theme from the love story. Uh, I'd love that instrumental and bought that sheet music as soon as it came out. You may have done the same thing. I did thing. exactly that. Yes, <laughs> exactly that. First time I heard it, I'm sure you did too. I have got to play that song, you know, and yeah. and it's, it's that kind of thing. And, and those are the kind of songs that really resonated with me. Yeah. They were beautiful on the piano or whatever instrument it was playing. And I love instrumental music anyway, but, and I love choral music too, mm -hmm. but, and it's, and there's a very, very, very uh, limited amount of music I don't like, but I like jazz. I like classical. I, I, I pretty much like it all, mm -hmm. but I, I, I migrated or was drawn toward the soothing, relaxing legato kind of uh, lyrical, even though it doesn't have words, there's a lyrical rhythm and, uh, Almost, I've had people tell me that when they hear my music that has no words, mm -hmm. they put their own thoughts and words into my music. In fact, I've had people ask me, or, or yeah, ask me to not ever put words, for example, to Rachel's song, right? Because they want to put their own thoughts and words into the music as they're listening to it. Like you said, it, music can pull out, put you in an emotional place that uh, nothing else really can do by itself. So people want to put their own thoughts and feelings into the music. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's just kind of been my, my thing when all 120 of the songs that I've written, none of them have words and uh, it's just very soothing music. It was to me. And I, if it sounded good to me, I, I went on a theory. Well, if if I like it, maybe other people will too. Mm. And that has kind of that's done. <laughs> that's been pretty well true. Yeah, I think as musicians, I think we listen to music in a different way than non-musicians. And for me, I I like and appreciate. Appreciate is a good word for appreciating all kinds of music. But there's some music that still makes me cry. I, I just, and there's, again, with no words, I can just sit, listen, 
and I like music to tell to tell me a story. Um, one of the really moving pieces for me I'll share with you is uh, is the orchestral version of Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Every time it just, I can sit there and weep. Beautiful tears, though, because it's such an incredibly well-structured piece of music. Anyway, mm-hmm. so obviously people are all over the world getting this story without words from your first song, Rachel's song. Now, obviously, we need to play it in a moment. But before I do that, tell me about Rachel's song, if you will, please. Well, I was working at a company called Western Electric, which was the manufacturing arm of the old Bell system that made all the telephone equipment back in the 19... Well, up until 1984, when they broke up the Bell system. But that was my first job, working for Western Electric. I was an IT computer programmer in technology all those years, working with technology. And my way of relaxing when I would come home from a hard day's work is to sit down at my piano and just play something. Whether I got out one of my favorite pieces of music, like Love Story or whatever, and and just played it, or just sit down and just, I, I would even, I would call it doodling on the piano. You know how if, you, if you're an artist or you like to doodle on a piece of paper, you just kind of go where things go. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I did the same thing with the piano. I would sit down and I would, you know, sit, I'd play a, a C chord and just sit and listen to the chord. And I would just, you know, run, do some runs and then chord progressions and just mess around on the piano and just play. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as you know, when you're playing an instrument, you your mind is focused on that it takes you away from all this distraction of the stress of the day and you you can't be thinking about other things mm-hmm. too much while you're playing an instrument so that was my way of relaxing and in january of 1981 i came home from work sat down at the piano and started to play some music and the, what happened was i sat down and i started out in the key of c and I started playing this song and it was as if the notes I heard, it was as if the song was already in my head and I knew what was coming up and playing a familiar song, but it wasn't a familiar song. It was, it was just happening right then. I was playing this song for the first time and I played through, it was in the key of C, it went to A minor and then the chord and a D minor ninth chord and then a G seven chord and then back to C, whatever. And, and then the chorus, it went into the key of, of, of an F chord, and, and then it went to an F minor chord, a little, little sadness there, and then back to the C and so forth. So it was a very simple chord progression, almost like your standard uh, rock and roll <laughs> chord progression yeah, of C, A minor, F, and G, <laughs> all that, the standard, close to that. But it was very soothing, relaxing, and I, it was a beautiful song. I loved the way it sounded. Didn't think much about it. Two years, uh, two years, two days later, my wife came home from work and she says, Dave, what is the name of this tune, this song that I've been humming in my head all day long? You know, how you get an earworm and it just, you just, <laughs> once you start, you, you're, it's there all day long. She hummed a little bit of it and I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. And she says, what do you mean it doesn't have a name? You play it on the piano all the time. I said, well, I guess I just made it up. It's just something I made up. 
Well, she got all excited. <laughs> so, wow. And uh, she said, have you written it down? I said, no, I've, I've got it. I'm, I'm not going to forget it. That's it's it's permanently in my brain. And she said, oh, no, you're, you're something might happen to you and that song would be gone. So you better write it down. And so I, I said, OK. So I, I did. And I know your listeners can't see this, but this is the I'm holding up a piece of paper that I wrote down the song. This is exactly what I wrote in 1981. Didn't have a name, just the, the melody and the chords to go along with the song. So as you can see, it, it's a very simple song, very simple melody. And put that in my piano bench, didn't think much more about it. Two years later, some good friends of ours had a little girl named Rachel. And they kindly asked me and Linda to be her godparents. And so we've we, of course, agreed, and at, at little Rachel's christening service, we're sitting in the church with the family and the minister at a, on a Saturday. It was a private service in this little country church, and up at the front of the church and on the platform was a baby grand piano. So we're sitting there listening to the formal part of the, the christening service, and toward the end, I, I, I Punch Linda and I said, hey, what do you think about me playing this song that I've been, we've been trying to think of a name of for the last two years? What about me playing it now as part of the service? She said, that's a great idea. So when the formal, formal part of the service was over, I went up to the family and the minister and asked them if it'd be okay if I played a song on the piano. Well, of course, they said yes, and everybody sat back down. I walked over to the piano and sat down and started playing this song. And it just sounded beautiful in that church with not many people in there. The, the echo in the church sounded really, really great. And this and and about almost through the song, I hear in the in the audience, I hear <clears throat> throats being cleared and <clears throat> and some sniffles going on. And and I, and I noticed a few yeah. tears coming out of my eyes, too. And if you've been to a little baby's christening service, it's precious anyway. And. And so you'd layer on top of that some really pretty music. It really turns the turns the tears on. But they're tears of happiness and joy and, and admiration for this little baby. Anyhow, at the end of the song, as I finished playing it, I looked over at little Rachel in her mother's arms. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's Song in Her Honor. Wow. And, Jeff, that's how it got its name. And wow. it was just a perfect place to and perfect name for the song. Wow. What a beautiful, beautiful story. Well, since then, it's gone on to achieve many great things. And I want to talk about that. But first, we just got to listen, Dave. Is it okay if I play Rachel's song now? I think that would be a wonderful thing to do. Here we go.
Wow. Mm. I don't think I should speak now. It is one of those times when uh, the silence after the music is something that you just kind of just want to sit there and remember what those sounds were and what it that what it did to your heart and soul as you were listening to it. It's uh, it still it still touches me after, and I've played it thousands and thousands of times, and it's a uh, it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful song and so many people's favorite song. I have I've gotten letters from over fifty thousand people about my music over the wow. last forty years, and it's many of those letters are just so heart pouring their heart and soul out of how much the music and telling me what it really meant to them and how it touched them. It's, it's really, really special. So uh, it's, it's been used in a lot of weddings. People have gotten married to it. Babies have been born to the music. Uh, uh, people have been engaged while they were playing the music and all these wonderful things. And, and it's also, I've played it at, at many funerals. And, and sadly, I'm playing it this afternoon for a dear, dear friend's funeral. She requested it as part of her funeral service. And, I hope I can get through it. It's, uh, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do, but um, it was her one of her favorite songs, and I'm going to play it for her. I know she's up, in, she's up in heaven, and she'll hear it again. So, you're a good Anyhow, man. If you're a good man. Thank uh, we, you. We're both in tears here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've had over 50,000 letters of thanks and appreciation I I know some of those people were in the depths of alcoholism. They're recovering. But you had one note that came from a gentleman on an iron lung who said mm -hmm. that Rachel's song actually brought him back to life. Not once, but twice. So D Dave, when you receive a letter like that about a song that you've written... How does it make you feel? It's an extremely humbling experience, and it's it's one where I I struggle to say that I wrote the song, and because uh, I think I'm taking way too much credit. That song was a gift, and I was just the one that God chose, tapped on the shoulder and said, "Hey, Dave, won't you play this song this evening?" And I played it. And I had the good fortune to have a wonderful wife who had the foresight to have me write it down. And it was also her idea that I go to Nashville, Tennessee, and get a demo recording of it. And that recording that you just heard of Rachel's song is an unaltered, unedited, unremastered, the original demo recording that I got made on August the 22nd, 1986 with a wonderful young mu musician that I met for the first time that evening by the name of Gary Prim. Gary Prim is another person who has such a gift of playing music. He can sit down at the piano and play any song. He plays total, almost totally by ear. And his, he can just, he is so gifted. If you ask any musician, big name musician or, any, or anybody in Nashville, Tennessee, do you know Gary Prim? They all will unanimously say, oh, do I know Gary? He is the best. He is in huge demand on many recording sessions because of his gift. And that was Gary playing an arrangement, his arrangement of my song. 
And that evening was such an incredible uh, thing in my life. I had never heard anybody play my music before, but me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to sit in a and to sit in a studio and hear what you just heard for the first time, you think you had some tears in your eyes. <laughs> I had some tears in my eyes. I was, I don't know, I was beside myself with with absolute awe at what had just happened. And so I'm so happy that that recording that you're listening to has not been. We didn't go back and re-record it, do anything. That is the original. And that t- speaks to me of the, the quality of today's t- very talented session musicians. And I'm, I know, Jeff, you've been around yeah. many in, yeah. in your life, and they are just an amazing group of people. Their talent is they don't even know how talented they are sometimes. Mm-hmm. They just go into the studio and they create and they go home and that's my, that's my job. Yeah. But other people would go in and see it and say, oh, God, I just witnessed a miracle. This is yeah. just an amazing so uh, it's it's really something. Yeah, Dave, I, I want to rewind. When we first started talking about Rachel's song, you said you sat at the piano and you all the song was already in your head, even though you'd never played it. It was already there. And then just when you were talking about playing it, uh, when you'd written it and you said, I can't take the credit for it. I'm just the recipient. It was given to me. So twice you've alluded to this. this. This fascinates me. So what do you think was going on there? Well, in looking at my state of mind and my emotions that I was going through at the time that I set it down at the piano, I, I must tell you, and the story is in my book, at the last chapter of the book, it tells the story. But I had just lost my father to a uh, tragic automobile accident three days before Christmas in 1980. First time I'd ever experienced real grief up close and personal. And, I, you know, it's a, the grieving process is, 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 it is a process, and it takes time, a long time. And, uh, and I believe, you know, this was not too many weeks after that death of my father. And if you listen to the song, and the emotions that come through that song, I think some of those grieving emotions of memories of happy times and memories of sad, you know, the sadness and all that, that comes through somehow in that song. It's the expression of those, that range and roller coaster of emotions. And I think, you know, when I've had people write me and tell me that the first time they heard the music in a standing in a gift shop and somewhere so they just they stood there and bawled their eyes out they were just crying and they didn't know why they just did not they the music created that emotion in them and and that has happened many many times and uh so it's that's about the only connection that i can make because i really don't know for certain where that song came from obviously but that's my belief anyway, and it's, that's how I can somehow rationalize and explain it to myself. Okay. Uh, let me put a slightly different spin on it. Because okay. Because I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of successful people, and things come to them. I'm not saying there's an answer here. I, I'm, I don't know what the answer is. But if I need help on something... What I do, I I don't want to get into religion. 
I'll just say the universe. People can put their own label on it. So I, I've written seven books now, and I was writing a book, and I was trying to fathom the formula for success in a simple way. And I'd created something earlier, and I just couldn't get my head around it, Dave. And I, I used this practice a number of times. I ask for guidance, and I ask for help from the universe. And I go to sleep, and then I wake up, and miraculously, I have the answer. Where does it come from? I have no idea. Now, the last time it happened to me, I was actually in hospital. And uh, my wife and my daughter came to collect me, and I'd still got the catheter in my arm. So the nurse came in. She said, OK, we can take this out now, Mr. Smith, and uh, you'll be ready to go home. So I'm standing there at the side of the bed, and my daughter's standing there with me. And she works in heart and lung transplant as well. So she took out the, uh, the, the catheter, and I turned to my daughter. I said, I don't feel too good. I think I might pass out. And, and I don't remember anything after that. Mm -hmm. Apparently, I hit the floor. I did pass out. They pressed the emergency button. Lots of nurses and doctors came in, lifted me onto the bed. And the next thing I knew, Dave, I'm waking up, and there's someone pushing on my chest, going, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. And I, and I said, wait a minute, wait. And what came to me then was this ultimate formula for success. It, it, in that moment, and, I'm, and I said, I'm not ready yet. I don't want to come round. <laughs> so this, <laughs> this wasn't a pretty sight, you know, you can imagine. <laughs> And I opened my eyes and I could see my wife and my daughter there and the doctor going, Jeff, are you okay? I said, I'm not ready. I'm just getting this formula right. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, Dave, it was there. It was absolutely there. So I have the whole thing mapped out. And where does it come from? No idea. I just say the universe. So maybe Rachel's song was it's given, an inspiration. given to you. In it is an inspiration. Kind of yeah, an inspiration. Yeah, but what I like about music and particularly Rachel's song and why I believe it affects so many people, it tells a story, takes you on a journey. You know, and uh, I, I have the benefit of seeing you right now. We're, we're talking to each other through video. And as soon as it started, you close your eyes and you're away. I did the same and... It's just a beautiful, beautiful journey. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So if people listening now want to get hold of Rachel's song, we'll start there. I know there's much more we can get from you, but if you say, hey, I want to listen to Rachel's song again, how can they get hold of it from you, Dave? Well, the very simplest and fastest way to do it is to go to my website, combsmusic.com, C-O-M-B-S music.com. And right in the middle of the page of my homepage is a link that says play Rachel's song. And it is the original song, the song you just heard, the whole thing. And I think there's even, a, it'll say, if you want to download the MP3, you can do that too. But it's, and it done, it's, it's free. You can go right there and listen to it. 
Now, now, don't bail out of our podcast here and go do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> you wait till we're finished, and then you can go do it. But it's combsmusic.com, and right there you are with playing Rachel's song. And, and of course, you can also there are links there that you can go to Amazon and buy the CD or download the, the whole album or all these kind of things. And you can also go buy my book, that kind of thing. But right in the middle is that link that says play Rachel's song on combsmusic.com. And that's how I, I hope that as soon as you get the opportunity, you will do that on your, whether it's on your phone, your tablet, your laptop, or whatever device you are going to be listening to it. Sure. And I want sure. you to hear it again. Uh, hear it again. Yeah. When, when the podcast comes to an end, we can repeat that so they can find out exactly yes. where to go. But there's more. There's more. <laughs> so you've written the song. You're inspired. It's called Rachel's Song for a beautiful reason. You get a session music, uh, musician to play it. It's a demo. What happens then? I played that song for anybody that I could corner for three three minutes and 45 <laughs> seconds to listen to that song. As you, Well, I'm sure you would have done the same thing. You, you've had it. this. Back I've then it was it. a cause, cassette tape said man come here you gotta listen to this and i played it for anybody that would i could sit still long enough to listen to it in my car or wherever i was <laughs> that the evening that i got it recorded i was sitting in my hotel and i was so antsy to have play it for somebody i got out of my hotel went in my rental car in nashville tennessee went to a shopping center to a circuit city store found a salesman i said i want you to play this cassette tape on your best stereo system in the whole store <laughs> and he did and <laughs> so I, I had i played it everywhere i could could go and and i found that everybody almost to i don't i can't think of anybody that did not like that song i mean they were taken by the music and as you said taken on their own journey through that song i got it played on the radio when i got back home had a friend that had a radio program. He played it on the radio. And everybody that heard that radio broadcast of Rachel's song the first time, the radio station's phone bank lit up. They had one of these 12 or 15 phone lines that you could call yeah, in, and yeah. all of them lit up. The station manager called me after the program was over, and he says, Dave, I've been in radio for over 20 years, and this has never happened to me before. Bob, my friend Bob McCone that played the song on his radio program, as soon as that song pl started playing, he said, our phone bank lit up. He said, everybody was calling, what is that song that you're playing on the radio? What's the name of it? Where can I get a copy? Tell me about this Combs guy in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so it was really, it became, uh, I guess today we would say kind of went viral. Yeah. It was just everybody wanted to hear that song again. That radio station played my music, Rachel's song, I think every hour, not just once a day. I think they played it once an hour for over a year. You wow. couldn't turn on WKLM radio station without hearing Rachel's song once in an hour. And they never got tired of it. Wow. Uh, Bill, wow. Bill Price, the disc jockey that was that back then, he's still a friend of mine and lives in High Point. He, he laughs every time he, I talk to him about Rachel's song. He said, that song, we just couldn't play enough of it. So it, it really took on a life of its own around the entire country. I got it played on every easy listening station in the United States. It was the number one or two or three charted song on the instrumental charts in all the big markets in the United States at one point. It was just amazing. What did you do to get it played on so many stations? 
a lot of work tell finding me, those. Tell me, <laughs> this is the important part. Yes, this is. You know, when I when I learned that, then that station manager told me. He said, "Dave, you got it. This song is special. You better do something with this song." And I'd already decided to do that anyway. But I, first of all, I knew that I had to get it played on easy listening radio stations. Now we used to have about four hundred of those in the United States. There's only maybe three or four left. I mean, there's that, that genre or format is just about gone away. But back then we had a bunch of them. And so I would start calling and looking them up. I didn't have the internet. We didn't have Google. (laughs) I had to, had to find their phone numbers. I found a publication called radio and records. I think it's R and R that they, uh, that published things about radio stations. And they had a publication of all the radio stations in the entire country that I could purchase that had their phone number and who the program director was and all that kind of stuff. So I bought that little book of the addresses and I started calling. I would just call every easy listening station I could think of and or look it up and and I would send them a copy of Rachel's song to play. And all every one of them played it, put it in their playlist. But some of them said, well, Dave, he said, they would say, we don't do our own programming. We, uh, we have a contract with a company called Bonneville Broadcasting back then that does our programming for us. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Who would I talk to at Bonneville Broadcasting that does easy listening stations? When they gave me this fellow's name and phone number, I called him up, talked to him. He, w- he was fascinated with the story. He said, well, send it to me and I'll take a listen. Well, as soon as he got it, he has a reaction was the same as everybody else. He loved the song. And so he called me and he says, Dave, well, I'm going to put your song, Rachel's song, in rotation on all of our stations. And I said, really? How many is that? He said, it's over 200. So instantly I go from just a handful (laughs) to 200 stations all over the country. Well, I continued and eventually, as I said, I got it on every easy listening station in the country. It even went to the country of Australia. And a friend took it there and gave it to a radio station person. They played it. It became the number one requested song in Australia for two years. Wow. And, and it's even in England today. And <laughs> yes. Yes, it's even in England today. That's correct. <laughs> so the, it just was a lot of work, you know, yeah. calling those people, contacting them, sending the, the, them the music, them liking it and, and putting it on the radio. So well, that- that's... Yeah, that started uh, the generation of a, of some fan mail. Yeah, cool. So at this time, you've still got a day job, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't able to quit my day job until 1992. Now, so I, I recorded Rachel's song in 1986. I recorded the album of that has Rachel's song on it with my, some other songs I'd written by that time in 1988. So I didn't have my first CD an album until 1988. Okay. And so, so let me, let me take you back. 1986. Okay. You've got to the radio stations. It's being broadcast everywhere. At that point, what did success look like to you? To me? And I, I think I still have some notes of where my wife and I sat down in some of our, what I would call our dreaming sessions of, you know, what do we really want to happen, happen here? What are our, what's our vision for this, this song? We, we could see the impact and the, the impact it was having on people that heard it. And our vision was to get this song out into as many people as possible. And obviously through the radio, that was happening so they could hear it. 
But that wasn't quite the same as them having their own copy at home at that time to play it on their own stereo system. And so we, we envisioned how can we take this song now and make it available to the masses, in, in essence, through obviously through retail sales or some method to sell it to the public. Uh, and we, we struggled with, you know, do I go to the regular record stores? We had a chain called Record Bar. We had, there was Tower Records and companies that were nationwide that sold vinyl records and, and eventually CDs. And, uh, but those stores would not even, hardly even answer my phone call. They did not have, you know, easy listening. Instrumental music was just not a genre that there was a big seller in their store. And they, they wanted jazz and rock and, and country, all the, the very popular genres of music. So I didn't get anywhere with that. And so we're still struggling with how do we get my music available for the masses? And it wasn't until uh, I was working in Bethesda, Maryland for AT&T at the time. This was actually, yeah, it was AT&T by then. 1988, I was working there, and uh, a lady that had an office right next to mine asked me if she could give one of my CDs of Rachel's song to a friend of hers who owned a gift shop. And I said, well, sure, because, you know, I had not found any place to sell my music before, so I was really kind of stuck until she said, can I give it to a, a gift shop? She did. She gave it to her friend, Jane, who owned this gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria. Now, if you've been to Washington, D.C. area, Old Town, Alexandria is a historic tourist place. And it's a great place. Restaurants and gift shops and great walking by the Potomac River. It's just a wonderful place. Well, this gift shop was upstairs on King Street. And the name of the shop was called America. And it was a patriotic kind of anything red, white and blue that she would sell in that in that store. So my, my, my co-worker gave a CD to Jane that owned the shop. And I didn't think much about it. And a couple of days later, my phone rings. And it's Jane that owns the store. And she says, uh, Dave, I got a problem. <laughs> she said, I've been playing Rachel's song on my sound system here in the store. And every time I play it, everybody in the store comes over to the counter and says, Jane, what is that music you're playing? Do you have that for sale? I'd like to take that home with me. And she, she didn't have it. She said, can you sell me some CDs and cassette tapes of Rachel's song? I said, well, sure. So we reached an agreement on a wholesale price. I'd never even sold any at wholesale before. This was the very beginning. Yeah. And so I said, okay. And she says, and can you bring them tonight? I said, well, yeah, after I get off work, I'll bring them down to you. And so, uh, we, my wife and I boxed them up, and we went down to Old Town that evening and gave her a box of CDs and cassettes and had a great dinner out in, in Old Town as well, made a nice little trip out of it. And then I was just hopeful that it would, it would do okay. Well, two or three days later, I get another phone call from Jane, and she says, Dave, I got an even bigger problem. She says, uh, I need some more of those. Those are all gone. And this time, why don't you bring me a double order this time? And can you bring them in tonight? <laughs> so <laughs> here we go. Bigger box of tapes and CDs down to Old Town. And Linda and I made that trip every week, delivering tapes and CDs to this gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria, every week for over a year. Wow. She sold thousands of copies of just Rachel's song. I mean, thousands of copies. 
it was a totally amazing. So and that was that was the 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 spark for a business model for how I would eventually make a business out of selling my music. Right, we'll come on to that in a moment. I want to rewind just a little. Okay. You've written the song. So before you were able to give it to the people in the gift shop, you obviously made a decision to cut it onto tape and CD. So you paid for that, I'm assuming, yes? So what yes. Was, what was your thinking then? Well, my thinking was that I had started getting, as I mentioned earlier, the, the fan mail. People had started tracking me down. This wasn't through advertising. They would call the radio stations. Mm -hmm. And the radio station, my address was on the, uh, the record that they were playing it from. They'd give them my address, and they'd send me a letter. Dear Mr. Combs, I love Rachel's song. Can you send me a, a cassette tape or a CD of, of this music? So that was when I decided, all right, I needed to have those manufactured. And it was a process of learning, you know, how do you get a cassette, an album recorded, and uh, the physical way of making multiple mass, mass production copies of this cassette or the, uh, the CD. And that was quite a learning process. And it uh, took some expense, of course, to get it mastered. And you got to design your, your CD cover, and you've got to uh, get all the everything just perfect for it to be manufactured. And then how many do you order? You've got to decide, well, do I, obviously, the more you order, the lower the cost per unit is. So there's, a, there's a law of uh, return on bigger numbers. You get less, less expensive. So I think I ordered, I believe it was about 500 cassette tapes. And I think I ordered about 500 or 1,000 CDs, something like that, for the first order. And, and so the, at least I had something then that I could turn around and mail to the people that wanted to order the, the music. And I would fulfill those orders in the evenings or on weekends because, as you said, I was still working at Western or AT&T during the day. So I was having to take orders. They were leaving orders on my answering machine at home. I'd get home at night. My answering machine would be full of people calling, wanting to place an order. So that was it was the beginnings of the of a of a business of turning the music into the music business for creating what I originally named it still called Combs Music. Yep. So that was how it started, and it was you know I I have my MBA from Wake Forest University, so I'm a business person. So it's that wasn't foreign to me, but I I needed to turn my my creativity and my music into a a viable music business as well. So right. then at least I had a product that I could sell and I had the beginnings of a business model with this one gift shop that old town in old town that, that sold and successfully sold and made a good profit for them and for me of music. Cool. Right. I'm going to come on to that in a moment. You've written Rachel's song. You've got it recorded, but now you have to create an album. So then the challenge is to write some more music. Now, was the, the, the gifting process in your mind the same, or did you have to work differently to get different songs? It was, I, I would I almost call it a revelation to me. Nobody prior to 1980, 1981 had ever told me that you could write music. 
Uh, they they liked the way I conduct. I was a choir director and I played the piano for church. I, know, I was I enjoyed music. They enjoyed my creation playing other people's music. But it's funny, it, not funny. It's it's interesting to me that nobody had ever told me from birth till age thirty three, Dave, you could write a song or you could write music. And it's kind of strange that I, that thought never occurred to me until Rachel's song came around and I realized. I do have a gift of creating a, a melody on the piano. So, yes, I sat down and I realized if I'm going to do something with my music, I can't just live off of this one song. I can't be a one-hit wonder here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or I don't want to be a one-hit wonder. So I've got to do some more. So I sat down at the piano, and sure enough, I could come up with more melodies and then work them into a song. Now, they didn't come quite as naturally as... All, to, all at one time, no changes at all. I did have to work at it, but I yeah. would begin the process of writing a song by starting with a little phrase or some musical phrase on the piano that I liked. Yeah. And then I would work around that and fill it out and, and eventually have a, a whole song. And so by 1988, I had written six more songs. So I had Rachel's song and six more songs. And then I could, I, I knew I needed more than six or seven to make an album because that was only, most albums have 15 or 16 songs on them. But I couldn't wait. I, I said, well, if, I, if I have to wait two or three more years to write enough music for an album, I'll never get this out there. So I went to Nashville, I hooked back up with Gary Prim, sent him the music to six new songs, and we went in the studio, spent like two days in the studio recording music and uh, ma mixing it, mastering it down, and I did get my music mastered, professionally mastered by another uh, really great fellow. And, uh, and that's an important process when you're doing a whole album to have it mastered so that the levels are consistent. Uh, all of us have bought, <laughs> bought records back in the day where you play one song and then the next song comes on, it's so loud, you got to, oh man, I got to turn that down. And then you, the next song is too soft, oh, I got to turn it back up. Well, that's because that album had never been mastered, and a, a true mastering process will level that all out. So I had my Rachel song album recorded and mastered, but it was a process of sitting down at the piano and realizing that, yes, I can create melodies on the piano, and I can write music, and I got really busy. That was my first album, and, and Linda said, well, for the next album of original music, Let's try this. She said, I want you to every morning get up an hour earlier, go sit down at the piano, and I don't want you to get up from that bench until you've written at least the beginnings of a song. Wow. And that's, ex <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. Now, when, when, you, when you see my, my second album of original music, it's called Beautiful Thoughts. Every song on that Beautiful Thoughts album was written there on my piano bench at probably 6 o'clock in the morning, before I would get up and go to go to work at AT&T, sit there on my old grand piano and write a song, or at least the beginnings of it, and put it on a piece of paper, and I'd come back and finish it later. Wrote the entire album that way, and it worked. And I, I was amazed at how I would sit down and a new a new kind of a musical thought would come about. You know, I would start, I'd maybe just start by playing a chord and kind of listen in my mind, what do I hear? And then just start playing and, and doodle around and, and create something. 
And that's exactly how I wrote that entire Beautiful Thoughts album. <laughs> and you know, this is Linda kind of, she come, came up with this term. She called it the Bob technique. And it was the butt on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> she said, Dave, you need to clean that up a little bit. She said, well, say bottom on the bench or something. <laughs> I said, well, it was really, it was butt on the bench. So I sat down at that bench and I didn't get up till I had written a song, basically. <laughs> so it worked. Right. I want to share with you and people listening now one of the secrets of success because this always comes out whenever I interview hugely successful people this step of success always comes out so you know I have the 11 steps of success this is one of them much later in the process of course but and it happened to me too so quite often people don't know they can do something for you it was songwriting for me I failed at high school, I failed at math and failed at English, and here I am, the most successful author in history who's written a book on mathematics. I, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's bizarre how things happen. How did I do it? Because I still had the day job as well. Yes, I had my own company, but I still had to function, and I didn't think that writing a book was part of my function, and I did exactly what you did. So I used to get up at 3 a.m. The family then used to wake up at 7 a.m. and then get the girls ready for school. Away they go, and then I'd carry on with the day job. And I help people with things like this, particularly writing books. And you know what writers do? They write. You know what pianists do? They play. And you have to find the time to do it. So how often should you work on your daily goals? Daily, right? So you have to find a way to do it. Uh, and what I've discovered, that we all have a creative time. For you, it was 6 a.m. before work. Exactly the same for me. But I would ask the universe for help. The universe would deliver to me between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is, you have, you have to act on it. You just have to get up. I'd get up, go downstairs to my office, and I'd just write. And, and I wrote this book in exactly the same way that you wrote your album. And that's what I find with successful people all over the world. Yes, it's time on task, and you, it's, it's, you have to spend time at your instrument, whether the instrument's a keyboard writing or it's a keyboard playing music. Yeah, indeed. So now then, you've ordered a load of cassettes. I remember those two. CDs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> CDs, yeah. 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 So now, now your vision of success is changing, I suspect, because you don't just want people to listen to it. Now you've tasted the fortunes of what your music can do, and you want to make a business out of it. Now this is the difficult part. People say, yeah, I like that. Do you want to pay for it? Yeah, not really. Do you want to buy an album? Yeah, m maybe I will. But then you have to scale it up. Mm -hmm. So you've sold it. You've created desire. You know it works. What did you do next? How did you scale it up so you could leave your day job 
and become a full-time professional musician? Well, I am a firm believer. I'm a, first of all, I'm a data-oriented person. I'm a, it's kind of a conundrum here. I'm a very logical, left-brain kind of person normally. I'm a computer programmer and, you know, very analytical. Well, that's kind of opposite of the creative side of your brain, the right brain, where you're creating music. So how, how do those two get along with each other? But my analytical side of my brain looked at what I was creating through that one gift shop in Alexandria. And that was kind of the light bulb moment for me that said, yes, this worked. And so I did a spreadsheet. This is back before uh, Google. The Internet didn't even exist. Yeah, but I yeah. did have com – we had a spreadsheet. It wasn't Excel, but it was Lotus a spreadsheet. Lotus 1, 2, 3, no doubt. Yeah, there you go. It was Lotus 1, 2, 3. And so I built a sp spreadsheet, and I put the numbers for that one gift shop in Alexandria in the spreadsheet, one column. How many cassette tapes had she sold? How many CDs had she sold? Here's what I, she paid me for them. Here's how much my unit cost was to purchase those. You do the math, and down at the bottom comes out your gross profit mm -hmm. your, uh, for that little column. Yep. yep. All right, so I did that for that gift shop. Now, and then I said, okay, what if I had one gift shop in all 50 states in the United States? Just 50. That's, you know, not getting greedy. So I've made a second column of column one times 50. So column two, bottom line number, oh, well, that's looking like an attractive number. And then I said, okay, here's, this, here's the thing. I'm going to say, let's just say five gift shops in every state, 250 throughout the whole country. Column three is 250 times column one. Go down all the numbers and have it calculate everything out. The bottom line number of the gross profit is Linda. Come here, you have got to see this number. Yeah. It's twice what I'm making at AT&T. And so we got excited. I realized that this business model could, in fact, supplant my income from AT&T. It could become a full-time entrepreneurial venture for me. And all I had to do was take and replicate this one and find those other 249. And there's the rub, there's <laughs> the rub, rub. Dave. How in the so, world do I do that? Yeah, so. so we can all create a spreadsheet. So now, how did you take it from the spreadsheet to bring it uh, to reality? So first thing that Linda and I did, so all right, we got to see, if are we going to have any luck finding other gift shops like this one? So on the weekend, so I'm still working at AT&T, and she's still working in her job. And so uh, on weekends, we'd get in the car, and we'd go to these towns around Washington, D.C. We'd go to Occoquan, Virginia, and up in Newmarket, uh, Maryland, and to Annapolis, and different places where we knew there were a lot of gift shops, and uh, Ellicott City, Maryland, for example, and and. She'd go down one side of the street, and I'd go down the other side. You call this shoe leather marketing. <laughs> yeah, I get. <laughs> We're that. literally yeah, walking yeah. the walking <laughs> the streets, and we'd find a gift shop. I'd stick my nose in the gift shop, and I'd listen. If I heard any music playing, I went on into the shop, and I'd explore and find out what kind of music they were playing. Talk to the owner or the manager, and and tell them about my little album. I'd say, "Can I?" leave you a cassette tape or a CD of my music and you play it and see what you think, see if your customers would like it. So I, I was, I, I didn't even have like a sales kit. It was a shopping bag. I had a shopping bag with handles and 
it was full of cassette tapes and CDs that I could and and business cards that I could leave. So we'd go up and down the streets and find these prospective gift shops, get back home, and almost every time we get before you even get back home, there'd be a message on my answering machine that says, "Mr. Combs, this is so and so at the gift shop, so and so in." And we, yes, we'd like to start playing and selling your, your music. And that's how that started. So we would do that every weekend. And I had built my, my uh, number of customers like the Old Town Shop up to maybe 20, 25 shops. And, you know, that was pretty good growth rate, you know. Yeah. So it was, but we were running out of territory. You can only, <laughs> on a weekend, you can only drive so far yeah. to yeah. the towns yeah. to go visit. And so, I said, Linda says, well, now maybe you need to start phone calling instead of us going physically. You need to telephone these people and talk to the gift shop owners. I said, well, okay, it's probably not going to be as, as successful as physically walking in the shop and meeting them eyeball to eyeball, but I'll give it a try. Fortunately, we were living in Maryland, real close to Washington, D.C. I went to the Library of Congress and in a room in the Library of Congress back then, they had a room of phone books. They had every phone book in the United States in this room. It was huge, by, you know, alphabetical by, by state where you could go to any city and, and you pull out a phone book. So I did. I, I pulled out phone books and I would copy the yellow pages of gift shops. So I'd have all the gift shops in this town, all their phone numbers. So I made Xerox copies of that and several of them back home and I'd get on the telephone at home on Saturday morning I'd start calling and I would simply say I can tell you I could I've said this so many millions of times I could say it in my sleep do you sell any cassette tapes of the music you play in your shop and I'd stop and listen and they would either say no and I'd say well thank you very much and or they you know they'd say no we don't even play music and thank you I hang up so it was a 13 second phone call Reason that's important, long distance calls back then were charged by the tenth of a minute. <laughs> so, yep. you know, every six seconds the, the 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 ticker ran up more money. So it was, and long distance calls were not cheap back yeah, then. Very expensive. So every every Saturday and Sunday, I started calling those gift shops that I'd make the copies of them, the yellow pages, and I, I would have to make thirty phone calls to get one customer as a prospect. That's a lot of times to hear the word no. And that's another, I think, a principle of success is that you have got to get used to hearing the word no, but you don't let it mean no, you're no good. It means no. It probably just means not yet. Yeah, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. <laughs> not ready yet. So I have 30 phone calls, I get one. I made so many phone calls that my phone bill came in a box, the size of a shoebox. There was all those little pieces of paper. That was a big phone bill. But I ended up with, like I said, 20, 30 gift shops that were really ready to go, and, and the business started to take off. And then I realized that I needed a better way to do this. There's got to be a more efficient way of making the phone calls. One in 30 is not a great hit rate. Mm -hmm. And I realized, too, that I was having most of my success in tourist towns as opposed to uh, urban big cities gift shops there was a big difference in the in the the kind of gift shops that were in the big city versus a tourist town but i needed to know where the tourist towns were i did not know except for the places that i had been in virginia and maryland and tennessee and north carolina i knew where those were i knew about gatlinburg tennessee and 
Blowing Rock, North Carolina, all those kind of places. But I didn't know about Kansas or Oregon or Mississippi, all these. I'd never been there, so I didn't know. And I couldn't find anybody else that knew either. I called Chambers of Commerce. I called the Department of Commerce in D.C. Nobody had a list of tourist towns. They thought I was asking for the moon. You know, it just that didn't, didn't exist. And so I thought to myself, there has got to be a way I can figure this out. And I did. It's one of those things I think I, I may have done exactly what you did. I may have thought about it and woke up in the middle of the night with the answer. Yep. And it was that I only needed to know two pieces of information to know where a tourist town was. I needed to know how many gift shops were in that town. Just count them up. You know, like Gatlinburg maybe has uh, 85 gift shops. And the other piece of information I need to know, what is the permanent population, resident population of that town? Well, Gatlinburg only has about 2,300 people as the permanent residents, even today of the city of the town of Gatlinburg. Well, there's no way in the world that 2,300 people can support 85 gift shops, which says those gift shops customers have to come from out of town. Guess what? That's the definition of a tourist town, right? (laughs) (laughs) So all you need is two pieces of data to to figure out where the, the tourist towns are. So I said, okay, now, how do I find out where all the gift shops are in the country? I need that. I don't. I can't go down to the Library of Congress and make a Xerox copy of the whole room full of yellow pages. <laughs> That's not going to work. So I found out that I could purchase the mailing list for the gift shops in the whole country. And I think it was a subsidiary of the, the yellow pages that sold them to me. And it came as a computer printout. It was about, you know, the big wide computer paper that you've seen. It was about four inches thick, and it was a... Big printout of 75,000 gift shops, 75,000. Now, that's going to be a lot of phone calling. <laughs> so, and the first thing I did was, and it was in alphabetical order within town, within state. So I went through every town, and I counted up how many gift shops in this town. And I made a spreadsheet on my computer, the name of the town and how many gift shops were in that town. Went through that whole printout. That took me a long time to go through that whole printout. But I did. And then I said, okay, I need to know what the population of all these little towns are. So where do I find that information? We don't have Google. The Internet hadn't been invented yet. We can't do it electronically. So how do I do this? Well, at least in the United States, and I'm sure it's true in England as well, if you want to know something, go ask a librarian. Librarians know everything, and if they don't know it, they know where to go get it anyway. You cannot stump a librarian. <laughs> There's no way. Now, there's a nice so, challenge for someone, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, right. <laughs> if they don't know, they can find out. So I, ironically, across the street from my office in Bethesda, Maryland, was the public library. At lunch one day, I went over to the library, and I, I asked the librarian, I said, here's what I need. I've got a long list of towns that I need to know the population of from the census data. And she says, that's no problem. So come over here on this table. Here's this book. Now, I know your, your audio audience can't see this, but this is, I'm holding in my hand a, a copy of a book that's called the Rand McNally Commercial Atlas Marketing Guide. This book weighs 12 pounds. It's about an inch and a half thick. And inside of it, it has a map of every state in the country, all the little towns and everything. But the big thing it has in the back, by alphabetical order is every little crossroad in the country and its population and some other data. 
Right. Let, so let, with let this me book, just let, let me just help someone listening to visualize what you have in yes, your hands. Yes, please. Here, so Dave is sitting in his chair and he has this book propped on his leg, on his thigh. And the top of the book is close to the top of his head. And he, he's opening it out and it's like an A1 flip chart. You know, when you go on a training course and you're writing, it's that big. And the print yeah. on it is tiny. <laughs> it is there tiny. are thousands and thousands and thousands of addresses oh. and references here. Yeah. So, so th this arrives, Dave, and you look at it. What do you think? Well, I did. I actually had to buy a copy of the book for myself. There's no way I could spend all that time in the library getting this. So yeah. I spent, I think it was about $125 to buy this book, mm -hmm. which back then was a lot of money, but yeah. it was worth it. So then I looked up all those towns, put the population in my spreadsheet, and then I said, okay, spreadsheet, another piece of data, I want you to calculate the ratio of population per gift shop and make that another data element. And then I want you to sort the entire spreadsheet by that ratio within each state. And so the lowest number at the top. So Tennessee, guess which town comes up at the top with the lowest population per gift shop? Well, there's Gatlinburg in North Carolina. Guess which one's at the top? Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Guess what? And it on and on, it confirmed that my theory was right, that that's the way to identify my customer, potential customers. So I took that spreadsheet then, and that's where I then started, continued my calling. And now that I had the printout of all the gift shops in the country, all 75,000, I didn't have to go make copies. I already had their phone number, the address, and everything right on that printout. So I would sit there at my phone. I even had it on speed dial. I would speed dial the area code and the three, three letter, three number prefix of that. And all I had to key in was the last four digits of the phone number. And I would make phone call after phone call after phone call. My hit rate went from one in 30 to one in five, four or three. I mean, it was like almost every call was, yeah, well, yeah, we don't, uh, we play music, but we don't sell it. And I said, well, okay, let me, have you had customers ask you about the music you play? Oh, yeah, we've had them ask, but we hadn't really thought about selling it. I said, well, I need you to think about that. Let me send you some of my music, and here's what you can buy it for and sell it for. You make a good profit on it. And okay, all right. So at the end of the day, when my voice would give out is when I would quit calling. <clears throat> I started on the East Coast in the morning, and as the sun, as the day got longer, I would go and migrate towards towns in the west and i'd end up in california and by six or seven o'clock at night on saturday <clears throat> my voice was just about this way yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was about yeah. give out I, but i would i had so many prospects at the end of a weekend i would have to make two trips to the post office in my car because the car wouldn't hold all the packages that i was going to need to mail and my business just went through the roof i ended up with over a thousand gift shops over the whole country playing and selling my music and along that journey was when 1992 came around and i finally was able to say to my boss at at&t bill i need to resign and do my music full time that's what god put me on this planet to do and i'm going to get on with it so i turned in my resignation in february of 1992 
and went to my music full time from that point forward and thousand of gift shops. And I had to hire an office manager to help me to fulfill the orders, answer the phone. And it was just a marvelous experience as a, an entrepreneur working for myself. My wife and I both worked together. She, she had left her job as well. So we both worked full time with my music for, from that point forward. Let me ask you a really deep question now. Okay. You said this is the reason God put you on this earth. Is this your purpose, Dave? Is that what you believe? I honestly do. And it's confirmed, I think, by all those many notes and letters from people that I don't know. They didn't know me. All they knew was my music. And when, it, when I saw and heard how the music had touched their lives, that, uh, you know, if I had not taken the step to create the music and get it out there, and, and this is not just from a, a monetary monetizing ad- attitude, it's, it's, it's really an, an attitude of I need to get this out into the world, period, to, yeah. to touch these people's lives. And that confirmation from all those people is reassuring and reaffirming that, yes, I, I did do the right thing, and that is at least – you know, there may not be, <clears throat> I've thought about this too. Everybody says, this is my purpose for God has given, this is my purpose in life. There may be, purpose is singular. You may have purposes. There may be more than one purpose in your life. In fact, most people have multiple gifts, multiple abilities to do things. So don't think just because you have one gift that that's, that's your sole purpose in life. Yeah, my music is one purpose in my life. But I have other gifts and, and talents as well. So there, it's a multi-faceted uh, approach to the, this idea of a gift uh, and a purpose in your life. There are purposes in your life. But this was so confirmed to me by these uh, letters that I'd gotten. And one thing I want to also, before we're finished, I want to talk about this little article that I wrote in Guidepost magazine. This was in 1994. So I'd already quit my job. I was doing my music full time, working out of the basement of my home and with the full time office manager, Betsy, that was working for us at the time and, and, and my wife, Linda, and having to answer the phone. Sometimes I would answer the 800 number to take an order. And, and this one particular call that I got was from one fan. Her name was Roberta Messner, M-E-S-S-N-E-R. You can Google her name. She is a very well-known writer in her own mind, but I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was I answered the phone and she said, this is Roberta Messner and I want to thank you for writing Rachel's song and I want to tell you what my your music has meant to me. She says, I have a terrible disease where I have to have multiple surgeries, very painful, and the pain is excruciating and that your my music has helped her through all of her painful surgeries and so forth. And she said, it's just a blessing to me. And I told her a little, she said, I want to know about how did you write Rachel's song? She was very curious. She wanted to know a lot about it. And after I told her a few things and she said, well, I'm, I, I must tell you, she says, I am a writer for Guideposts magazine. And I said, oh, really? She said, I, she said, your story about how you were able to write Rachel's song and develop it into a business that enabled you to quit your job and go do nothing but music is a wonderful story. And she said, can I submit the story idea to guideposts? I said, well, sure, <laughs> of course. So she did. 
And she, and she called me back in a couple of days. She said, well, the editors at Guidepost love the story. They want to do the, They want us to write it, write it up and send it to them. And she says, uh, she says, now I am a writer. And she said, I will ghostwrite the story for you and we'll submit it to Guideposts and see what happens. Well, next thing I know, I get a phone call from, well, she first wrote it up and sent it to me and we approved the story and, and how it was written and everything. Then she submitted it to Guideposts. And then um, I think it was about a month or so later, I get a phone call from the editor of Guideposts. And he says, Mr. Combs said, uh, we need you to send us a photograph of you and uh, something that we can put in the magazine. I said, okay. <laughs> so I guess that was my first realization that this is really going to happen. So I got up, Linda, I gave Linda, the, my, I'm a photographer, so I gave her my camera. And here I am sitting at my piano. The folks at home that are listening can't see it, but I'm holding up a picture of the magazine. And there's a picture of me sitting at the piano. That was taken by my wife. And so I sent that picture off to, to guideposts and they all, and I sent them another one that they were going to put in the back of the, uh, the uh, magazine, the guidepost. They have a thing called family room where they tell more about each of the authors. And in there was a picture down here of me and, and my wife, Linda, holding our kitty cat named Melody and tells my address and phone number and how to get a hold of me with the, if they want a copy of the CD, it's uh, $14 tapes are $10 and here's the address and my 800 number. And so I, I didn't think much about it. Well, about in, I think it was early it was September issue. So it was in August that it hit, hit the street. And well, I don't know the exact date, but back then I could have told you the date and minute that that magazine hit the street. Because my phone rang and it didn't stop, Jeff. It was just ring, ring, ring. You could pick it up and somebody was there. I mean, it was that constant. <laughs> 24 hours, that phone rang off the hook. And in less than two weeks, I heard from over 10,000 people who had read this article about my story about Rachel's song. They hadn't even heard the music. They just heard the story. Yeah. And they wrote to me and wanted a copy and my mailman came dragging his my mail down the driveway in a canvas bag one day. He rings the doorbell, and I go to the door, and he's standing there with this big bag he can't even pick up. He says, Dave, what in the world have you done? And I said, well, I just wrote a little article in Guidepost Magazine, and I guess people are writing, writing to me. <laughs> he laughed. He, I, it took us till 6 o'clock the next morning just to open the letters that were in that bag and not to even read them, just to take them out put a paper clip on it and set it aside six o'clock in the morning to open them. Now that was an enormous confirmation that I had, that this was what I'm supposed to be doing here. Yeah. And it was just an amazing process of revelation and business just has, it just took off from there. And, and I ended up with, you know, I, the last mailing I did, I think I mailed and mailing out to over 28,000 people that I had a new album and it's just, just an enormous confirmation and the feedback that I always got was just so confirming and so heartwarming. Unbelievable. Dave, you're such a lovely guy, but I want to say you have this quality that all successful people have. And, and it's this, you got up off your ass and you took action. You took massive action 
So you're already working with AT&T and you spend whatever time you've got left making phone calls until your voice is gone. How many people would do that? Not many. And one of the drivers, you had found your purpose. So I, I'll agree with you. I'll come on to one of your purposes. And what that had created inside of you was this burning desire to get it out there. Now, what's fascinating is that I'm getting emotional because I did exactly the same thing. And people say to me, and, and you've just you've just given my story just the same. I didn't I didn't do my stuff for money. Mine was to get it out there to help other people for contribution in my case. Yours was not for money. But what's interesting, when you work that hard and you really want to help to change people's lives as you have done, guess what happens? Success and money then follows afterwards and then mm -hmm. you can do, do more with it. So kudos to you. Lots and lots of success lessons in today's. So far, well, I've not finished with you yet. There's more, <laughs> there's more. So now we're operating, if I might say, like the dinosaurs. Then comes along the internet, which is a huge, massive new paradigm. Then what? Well, it first of all, thanks to a company called Napster, which you will recall, yeah. it knocked the music business back on its feet. And basically it undermined and devalued the intellectual property of music for a long time. It took a while to recover from that that slap against the creators of music because uh, basically the company was stealing your property. It's like they came into my basement and took a truckload of CDs out and gave them away on the street corner. Might as well have done that yep. because when they would take my digital copies of my music and make Rachel's song available for free, to anybody that wanted to download it. And here I am at home trying to make a living selling my tapes and CDs of my music. And all of a sudden the, the sales just go down yep. to almost nothing. That's a big hit. That is a big hit. And it, were it not for the direct mail aspect of selling my tapes and CDs, which I did through back then, it was marketing through US mail, you know, and when I would come out with a new album, that's what kept it afloat. If I had not had that, I, it would just have been a losing proposition. Well, by the turn of the century, in the t by the year 2000, things were really bad with the music business. And it wasn't until Apple, the computer company, came along and created iTunes. And basically the downloading of music on on from iTunes at 99 cents a song. And I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, golly, 99 cents a song. Then I realized, well, you know, an album has 15 songs on it. So well, maybe that's about right for us per song. And so that's how it started. And luckily it did take off and the, the courts had taken care of Napster. They had really knocked them down and, and put them out of business, basically giving away the music. But by then, the attitude about the value of music had already changed. Young people, their attitude was this is it's all free. Why, why can't I download it for free? 
And overcoming that attitude was a, a, a longer term process. But at the beginning of iTunes and Apple Music was the start. And then shortly after that was the the streaming of music. When you had, the, I believe Pandora may have been one of the first to offer a streaming. And as soon as I learned about these platforms, I got my music onto those. I took, like you said, I took action. I found out how do I get my music put on Pandora? And then when Spotify came along, how do I get my music submitted to Spotify so that everything I have is available for listening. So taking action as you learn that the technology and the world around you changes, you got to change with it. You can't sit there in your chair and, and just live off, live, sit on your laurels and wait. You're going to be out of business pretty quick, especially this day and time. So that's the advent of the internet in the mid 1990s. I put up my Combs music website. In 1995, I'm a computer programming data kind of person. I saw that I wanted a Combs Music website. So I got the URL, my, my own combsmusic.com. It belongs to me. I bought, got that nailed down, created my own website. I learned how to program HTML programming by myself by copying other people's websites of how they did things, taught myself the language, built my website. So now I'm at least on the internet available when people do go to combs music they can find me and then later on i was as the technology improved i migrated everything i could to the whatever the newest and latest thing is and today even downloads are a small part of the business most everything today is streaming yeah it's not even downloading and uh, the world is changing still evolving but i'm trying to stay on the and the cutting edge of it I'm, I'm usually an early adapter of most everything that comes along first time we had a apple computer i we got one of the apple se computers when as soon as it was invented and so on but uh, so as new things come along i'm going to be hopefully right there with it to to jump on that bandwagon cool. and if you don't you won't succeed you've got to stay current sure so how do you define success today Today, success to me is measured in the number of lives and people that I can touch with my music. It is, it is not a, a monetary figure. It is not a, a hard and fast number. But I know that as, if I'm doing everything I can do through podcasts and every opportunity I have to spread my music and, and promote the music, I'm doing that. And, and writing my book was a big part of that. You know, I thought, well... I'm really probably not going to make a, a huge amount of money selling my book of, on Amazon, but I'm going to do it because people need to read these stories. And it is a book for an entrepreneur. Somebody, it doesn't even have to be in the music business. If you're, like you said, your, your books that you've written about the success principles and that kind of thing, those are in that book. My stories are kind of like a, they're about, I counted up, there's 76 little short stories in my book. Each little story has a lesson that I learned sometimes the hard way uh, about how to succeed and, and either go around an obstacle or over it, under it, around it, or through it and, and, move, and move forward. And I like this analogy that I heard uh, somebody on television the other day say that you can only make a right, correct turn if you're moving. If you're sitting in your car in a parking lot engines running you can turn that steering wheel all you want to in the parking spot you're not going anywhere 
But if you're moving forward, you can turn and move. So you can only direct and guide your life if you're moving forward. I love so that, that metaphor. So, yes. So what's in the book and how do we buy it? How do we get hold of a copy? Well, go to my website, combsmusic.com. And on the left side of the page, you will see a picture of the cover of my book. And underneath the picture will be a link that says purchase now from amazon.com. Click on that link and you'll go right to the Amazon page for my book. And you can get the book in paperback or you can get it in a Kindle ebook. So you can download it and begin reading it instantly. Or if you're an Audible subscriber, you can listen to me read it to you for eight hours. <laughs> I sat in my studio and, and recorded my whole book. And that was a big undertaking as well. I don't know if you've done that with any of your books, but it is <laughs> reading your own book. You better set aside several days worth of recording and don't try to do it all at one time either. Your voice will give out. <laughs> but you can listen to me read the book on Audible if you're an Audible subscriber. And on the other side of my website page is a picture of my, my CD, Rachel's Song. And underneath it is a link that says go to Amazon.com and it will show you the CD. You can buy a physical CD or you can pay and download the, the whole album or one song. And if you're an Amazon music subscriber, you can stream the music. So go to my home page and that's where you can find my book and my CD at combsmusic.com. And I've kept it very simple. If you want to write me an email, my email address is right at the bottom of the page. It's just dave at combsmusic.com. And I read them all and I answer them all. So I love to hear from people. Awesome. But check, check it out. I'll include all of that information and your book cover, your CD cover, and, and some information from today in the show notes as well. So those listening on jeff-smith.com forward slash podcasts, that's where you'll find the show. Of course, you could well be listening on Apple, but all the information will be on Dave's website or on my website. Okay, I'm, I'm going to end this show quite differently. Normally what I do is say, thank you very much. In comes the music. And I say, I hope you've enjoyed the show. But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it ends it on, on a beautiful high. And it, it is nice. But I will ask, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed Secrets of Success, I mean, Dave has been wonderful today. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a Thank real, you, real, real pleasure and honor to have you here. Real, really. Um, if you've enjoyed it, hit like, hit follow, share the podcast, tell your friends, all of those things, because we can't succeed without you. I'm also searching for other success stories so if you'd like to nominate someone else to come on the show then i'd love to hear from you you can contact me at jeff-smith.com i'd really love to hear from you i'm going to say bye bye now i'll say dave thank you so much are there any wise words you want to leave us with well, I don't know about wise words, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you a huge thank you for having me as your guest today. This has been just so much fun, and I've enjoyed immensely talking with you today. It's, it's been great. Dave, you're a gentleman. Thank you so much. I guess you know what I'm going to end the show with. It has to be Rachel's song, right?
So I'm just going to close my eyes. Don't do that if you're driving. <laughs> I'm just going to close my eyes. And Dave Combs, I'm going to let you take me on a journey with your music on Rachel's song. Thank you so much.
music of Dame's Dave Coombs. Thank you, Dave. You're a real gentleman. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs>